Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. On Friday, the 20th of September, which is tomorrow as I'm recording this, um, there has been an international call for a climate strike for school children around the world and also for people um, in work to take time out of their day um, and advocate, think about, be active on behalf of the climate crisis that the planet is suffering. In honor of these efforts, um, I have created a climate strike episode. Um, The activists have asked those of us in work to spend 30 minutes of their working day um, doing something um, in behalf of the climate and not working. So uh, the first 30 minutes of this episode um, will be me speaking to um, Alisa Gilbert, uh, a climate specialist, um, academic and um, policy expert, um, about nine things, specific and concrete things that you can do to help the climate. Um, Obviously, Climate change is a, is is an underpinning issue that affects almost every aspect of American and, and global life today. Um, and also in the second half of the podcast, I will be taking a look at the specific climate policies that some Democratic candidates have put forward. Um, but ahead of that, um, just to help us get in the frame of thinking about what we can do and feeling more hopeful and more um, constructive and direct action oriented. Um, Here are nine things that you personally can do um, to help resolve the climate crisis. So I want to welcome Alisa Gilbert, who is the head of policy and translation at the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment onto the podcast today. Welcome, Alisa. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a it's a pleasure. Um, Alisa, I really wanted to talk to you today because um, the climate strike is obviously happening um, tomorrow, Friday, which is when many people will be listening to this podcast. Um, and it's been wonderful to see this resurgence in, in climate activism. Um, but I think a lot of people like, like myself um, have this vague sense of we're very concerned about the climate, um, especially as, as parents or just people living in this future world. But we feel like the problem is so big, um, we've gone so far down the wrong path now, um, that a lot of us just feel this sense of learned helplessness, like there's no way back, there's nothing we can do. So I guess the first question I wanted to talk to you about is, um, it was really fundamentally, is it too late to, the, to save the climate? And can we as individuals still make a difference and make an impact? Yeah, okay, yeah, thanks. That's the that's the kind of question that's on lots of people's minds. So let's take that one part at a time. First of all, is it too late to do something about the climate? So it's not too late. And in fact, more importantly, we actually have to do something about it. Because if we don't act now, or start acting now, then the challenge and the uh, problem of climate change is just going to get worse and worse. So we've emitted a lot of greenhouse gases into our environment already, and that's causing the global temperature to rise and causing a lot of knock-on climate change impacts. Now, if we don't start curtailing and reducing the amount of emissions that we put out there, it's just going to keep getting hotter and hotter and hotter. So it's a different way of looking at it, that we must do something now so that we can start turning the tide, right? Now, then the question is, is it too late? And then you have to say, well, too late, too late for what? So we, we've had an international report uh, towards the end of last year by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And that report was looking at what it would take to limit the change in global temperatures 
just to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels? What would we need to do to limit the temperature rise that much? And they estimate that what we need to do to be able to have a, a chance of reaching that, that goal is to reduce our emissions globally of greenhouse gases to net zero around 2050. And that's a really significant change. That means no more emissions pretty much from, from fossil fuels and all of the activities that we do that including industry and agricultural activities that produce greenhouse gas emissions. It doesn't mean stopping those activities, it means preventing the emissions that are related to those activities. So then the question is, could we do that? So there are some routes that we could follow that could enable us to still limit temperature rise to one and a half degrees. But I'll be honest with you, they're really, really hard. They're hard to do them at a totally global level. But we do have to try and reach that goal, I think, because it's only by doing that we'll start making those changes to the system where we live, you know, to, to make it possible. So, for example, to whole scale change our relationship with how we travel, for example, in cities and, and beyond that. So we have to aim to get to that net zero around 2050 as best we can. If we do, everyone around the world does manage to reach net zero by 2050, then we can stay within a one and a half degree temperature rise. And if not, then we can continue to just limit that temperature rise maybe somewhere like two, de two degrees or two and a half degrees. That's, you know, that, that still will mean some impacts. And some of those impacts are really, really severe for some people in some parts of the world and some environmental systems in some parts of the world. So for example, with a one and a half degree rise in temperatures, you could start to see sea level rise in a way that's completely catastrophic and even existential for some low-lying island nations. And we also know that at two degrees, we may see an almost complete wiping out of coral reefs. So there's significant impacts at those temperatures. But of course, if the temperature keeps rising beyond that and the climate keeps changing, then we're going to see a more and more severe impact. So we, we do have to just go for it, you know, start reducing our emissions now. And so I guess, I guess the point, which is so obvious, but uh, people just lose track of that in the sense of, uh, of learned helplessness, like I say, is that any, any change now will have an exponential effect in the future. So for better or for worse. So act now, you know, we may not be able to completely reverse it, climate change, but at least we can make the future a bit better to whatever degree that is possible. Yes, exactly, exactly. And then you also ask this question, you know, what can we do as individuals? And I think that's a great question because this kind of helplessness that you describe is also this feeling like you're part of this big system and you can't really do things that differently than you did already because there's not much that's in your control. And that's what led us to publish the nine things you can do about climate change. Of course, um, it's not possible to tackle this problem wholly as an individual, but by starting to do small things, changing small things and behaving differently, you are contributing to the solution. And many of the solutions do involve people to start making choices that are different than the ones they've made before. So choices about what you eat or how you travel, they will be part of the solution. But what we also importantly need is that decision makers in policy and in business start providing individuals with an infrastructure and choices around them that make it easy for you to make those choices. So for example, if you don't have a public transport system near where you live, then you cannot make the choice to choose public transport instead of a, a perhaps more polluting alternative. It's, it's essential that that infrastructure is there. One of, one of the big changes that we need to see in the future is a move to low carbon heating. Now low carbon heating isn't something that's really available to pretty much anybody right now. And so your voice as an individual saying, I want to make this choice, so will someone give me an option so I can make that choice is actually really important because politicians and businesses, they listen to their citizens, their voters and their consumers. 
Fantastic. So that's what I love about this list is that this is about how to use your power as a citizen and your power as a consumer and your power as a person in society um, to make better choices and also push for better choices to be available. So let's let's go through them. So step one, first thing you can do, make your voice heard by those in power. What does that mean? How is that helpful? Yeah, so what that means um, is that you do something, it could be writing a letter to your MP or your local councillor or going on the climate strike uh, on, on Friday the 20th of September. This is the next one coming up. So do something that lets your elected representative know that you care about this issue. It's actually very important because elected representatives want to do something for the people who voted for them, but they don't always know what the priority of your needs and what you care about are. So by hearing your voice, it's a signal to them, I should do something about this because the people that I represent care. So engage with them in that kind of way and be as specific as you can. You know, I care about this because and I'd like you to do X, Y or Z for me in my local area. And sometimes if you happen to have a representative who's done something really good, then congratulate them for it. For it. They like that. Right. You know? so, you know, so, I, so, a little bit of a carrot. Yeah, I, I love that point. It's about rewarding as well as punishing, you know, people who do good things, that's, they need to hear our voices that we appreciate that as well. Exactly. And I mean, we've, we've seen a trend in, 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 in local authorities recently to declare climate emergencies. So engage with that, you know, your local authority, if they've declared a climate emergency, tell them you're delighted about that and ask them what they're doing next or help, help them do something next or, you know, offer to be part of a community group that does engage with that. Because actually in many cases, those people in local authorities are looking for advice and a steer and are hungry for information uh, and also people to help them to achieve those goals. Great. Okay, so the number two way that you can have an impact on the climate, it says eat less meat and dairy. Now, this is a really great one for me because I have recently started eating a lot less meat and it's easier than I thought it was going to be. I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm eating less and I didn't realize how much of an impact that could have. So why is that such a such a valuable thing to do? Um, it's a it's a really valuable thing to do because if you look at the evidence of how much greenhouse gases are created from different types from from the production of different types of food stuff, then then certain types of meats, particularly ruminant meats, have a much higher what we call carbon footprint. So more greenhouse. What's gases. a ruminant meat? Sorry. So a ruminant meat is an animal that that um, digests its food in more than one kind of compartment of its stomach, like basically like a, cow, a cow or gotcha. a, a yeah, exactly, exactly. So so there's, there's different types of emissions that come from these animals. Some of it relates actually to methane that comes from their bodies, um, but it's also about the fact that if you if you have an animal, they've had to eat something else to become an animal, right? They've had to eat some plant food already. <laughs> so it's actually, a, a, it's it's a doubling up of, of the energy also, and sometimes the fertilizers and so on put into the production of food because there's had to be some some feedstock produced for those, you know, to, for those animals. Now, just even just changing, like you've described, you've done changing your diet a little bit more flexibly can really, really have an impact um, on, on your emissions. You know, it, for people who are gonna go whole hog, then a regular high meat diet is approximately two and a half times more greenhouse gas emissions than a fully vegan diet. But you know, not everyone has to do that. So if you if you just reduce the amount of meat you eat one day a week, that makes a difference. And there's also, of course, you know, the the the, the National Farmers Union in the UK is very supportive of reducing greenhouse gases. And what they also encourage people to think about is also choosing sustainable farming methods. There's a lot of really great farmers in the UK who are trying to farm in a way that's that doesn't create many emissions and still produces good quality uh, 
you know, animal protein. So, you know, look at, looking into the provenance of your food is also an important part of this aspect. And I think that's a great example of where your consumer power to affect the choice that you're granted is so important because it wasn't that long ago that it was relatively hard in a lot of places to eat a vegetarian or vegan diet. And I feel like one of the reasons I found it easier to reduce my meat consumption is there are more good veg- vegetarian and vegan options out there. And there are more farmers who are willing to come out and proudly live up to certain ethical and environmental standards. So the kind of change in the system has allowed for better consumer choice in this case. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And that's, you know, being being the, the early movers who purchase those products and reward those farmers for the choices that they've made um, and also show those restaurant establishments and so on that this is something that consumers want, then the more we're going to see of it. Great. Number three, cut back on flying. Yeah, so this is um, this is one that that people find quite difficult in in some parts of the community. You know, there's some people who fly a lot, but actually the people who fly are a small percentage of the population, actually, usually the wealthier part of the population. And flying is very, very, uh, very greenhouse gas intensive. That's because obviously flying a small ton, you know, tons and tons of metal through the air requires a lot of energy. And at the moment, the, the, the best carrier of that is fossil fuels. So reducing flying is something that can really make an impact. And I think really what we're asking people to do for those people who do fly is really to think about whether you really need to fly on every occasion. You know, there's a lot of people we live in in a very interconnected world who have family that they really need to visit. And that's a very important part of their lives. But there is quite a lot of business travel that could perhaps be replaced by video conferencing or similar. And so just think about how you travel. Maybe try it out also. Try going on a train journey when you would have flown. Um, train travel is less carbon intensive and particularly where we have um, increasingly electrified train routes. So give it a go. One thing that you list in your guide that I hadn't previously thought of, and and this is not particularly relevant to me, but but you did say actually flying economy rather than first class or business class is more carbon efficient if you have to fly because it takes up less space. So overall it's better. And I just never thought of it that way. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. So actually, if you fly in a relatively a new airplane with a lot of people on it, <laughs> so efficient packing of people, then actually <laughs> for, a, for a given amount of fossil fuels, you're actually transporting the most number of people that you could. So that means that your footprint as an individual is lower than it would have been. If you travel in your own private jet, then your footprint is actually enormous as an individual compared to what it had done if you're you're traveling in a, it's a much small, smaller plane with lots and lots of people. So that's also a consideration you can make. Yeah. It's very easy for me to make the sacrifice of not flying business class since I don't get to anyway. But um, you also talk about carbon offsetting um, where you do need to fly what what how does that work so carbon offsetting is a way of making an additional carbon reduction somewhere else um, on the planet uh, to compensate for the fact that you know you know you've added some pollution so in a, in a crude way that's like saying well if I'm flying I'm gonna plant some trees and they're gonna pull some carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere as they grow which will compensate for the fact that I've added a little bit more in as I fly and that's, you know, it's really an interim measure that's available right now. There's companies that offer some carbon offset products. Um, I think some airlines allow you to purchase them when you buy your ticket. In, in, in the long term, we're going to have to find a way to travel. And that might be with new flight technology that doesn't emit any greenhouse gases, because eventually we are going to have to reduce greenhouse gases all around the world in every sector. And there won't be anywhere left to make these offset investments. But for the moment, there are actually kind of different places where you could make an additional investment with your money that reduces greenhouse gas emissions where they wouldn't have been reduced otherwise. And you could do that as a compensation for what's happening while you're flying. Okay, number four on your list, leave the car at home. How does that help? 
Yeah, so that helps again. Um, if your car, I'm assuming that your car in this case is not one like an electric vehicle that's run on a zero carbon power source or at least a lower carbon power source. So if you have a car that's run on petrol or diesel, think about getting in the habit of using a lower, less lower carbon, less polluting route. And that can involve walking or cycling, but also just taking public transport instead of your car. Sometimes you can think about sharing your car with other people just a little bit more consciously um, because cars are mostly at the moment still run on internal combustion engines and that's burning fossil fuels and directly emitting carbon dioxide. So trying and changing those things. Okay. Um, number five, reduce your energy use and bills. That's presumably to do with your, your home energy use. Yeah, that's right. And so um, when we talk about energy, actually, most people immediately think about electricity. But of course, in your home, there's two main, main ways you use energy that have a big impact on the climate. One is your electricity use and the other is your heating use. Um, and in fact, you know, you can save a lot of both of those uses by making your home more efficient in the way that they use energy and making sure that all of the appliances and technology use are as efficient as possible in the way that they use electricity. And you can go a lot further than in reducing those emissions by just already using less fuel. And then after that, you can say, well, is the fuel I use the cleanest fuel? Can you find renewable electricity provider? Can you go as far as you can in getting some renewable heat provision, which is a technology that's that's not quite out there fully in the market yet, but for electricity it is. So the best thing you can do is increase the efficiency and then you'll be using less fuel and that will also save you money. Right. So as a practical matter, that, that often means things like just insulating your windows or making sure that, you know, your home is well sealed. It doesn't have to be whole new technology, does it? Oh, absolutely. Energy efficiency is the most established it's sort of we call it a technology, but it's it really techniques and things that have been around for years. So absolutely install in putting um, double glazing your windows. I mean, windows, doors and roofs are the ways that most heat leaves your house. So making sure that your roof is insulated if, if you're an, someone who has access to the roof of your house, certainly walls, um, proper insulation and that kind of thing is really, really, really vital. Um, but then with appliances, you know, when you go and buy an appliance or you lease an appliance, it can tell you about its uh, energy efficiency rating. And of course, the, the most A++ you can get, the better. <laughs> um, and those things also are, 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 are easy ways to reduce your electricity use. And of course, think, think about the same thing when you're um, choosing your water-based appliances also. So you can choose something that's also water efficient as well as energy and electricity efficient. Great. Okay. The next one, respect and protect green spaces. What do, what do you mean by that? Well, so one of the issues about um, climate change, and I've, I've spoken to you mostly about what we call mitigation, so stopping climate change from happening by reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. But another, um, another dimension of climate change is, of course, we do know that the world is already getting warmer around us. And protecting green spaces is actually a way that you can achieve both of these goals at the same time, both managing and adapting to the climate that's already changing, as well as helping us reduce the impact that we have on the climate. So if you have a park, um, it's really important because its trees do take in greenhouse gases. Now, mature trees will also give out carbon dioxide at night when they're not taking in carbon dioxide. But if your park is a growing living space, new trees can be planted, so it can be a way to take in carbon dioxide over time. Um, but also, these areas actually cool down spaces, particularly big cities, where heat gets concentrated. So as our world is getting a little bit warmer, having green spaces there has a, has a double effect on climate change. And does that mean, also mean that if you are, say, a homeowner, that planting a garden and reducing the paving and kind of the adding more green space into your own personal property has potentially an impact? 
Absolutely, absolutely. And it's got the same, as I was saying before, an impact on both sides. If you can plant a couple of more trees, please try to do so. Um, the government has a very ambitious tree, tree planting schedule for climate change. I'm tr trying to plant about, I think, eventually maybe 40 or 50,000 hectares of trees per year by 2050. And that's a lot. As a country, we only currently plant 9,000 hectares of trees a year. Um, but that should also include some urban trees. So if you have a garden, think about planting trees and definitely think about removing some paving, adding some green space there, that kind of different land use is also excellent for biodiversity. It helps absorb water and rain. And we also expect as the climate changes to have some more sort of more different kinds of basically rain and precipitation events. So you'll also help protect your home against flooding in your area from that kind of thing. Great. So suggestion number seven, invest your money wisely. That's a really good one. What what can we be doing to make sure that we're investing with this in mind? So increasingly, investors and companies are being asked to say a little bit about what their approach is to climate change. We know that to create the kind of infrastructure that we need to have a zero carbon economy, we need some investment in that. So I mentioned um, for example, we need to make sure that our rail system is electrified. We want to make sure that all new buildings are built to the most excellent um, energy efficiency standards, for example. We need to make sure that we have a flexible electricity and grid system uh, with a very high degree of renewables. And all of this needs investment. And that's just in the UK, right? You also need some significant infrastructure investments in the rest of the world that help build this low carbon resilient future. So who's making this investment? Well, this investment is being made um, by banks and financial institutions. And a lot of those investments are being made with our savings. So you should ask yourself, well, my big savings, if I've got any savings at all, might be in a bank, but I might also have a small pension fund. So what are the people doing with my money until I become a pensionable age? So you should find out from your pension fund what they're doing and actually see if you're in the kind of pension where you can move your pension choice between, between different options, some of which might actually have some quite good environmental and even climate credentials. So think about what, what messages you can send to those people and where your money is saved in a bank. Again, if you have savings, find out from your bank what they're doing about climate. And just like the make your voice heard recommendation, these banks need to hear it from their customers. And if they hear from you that you want a product and they hear from lots of people that they want that kind of product, then they're going to have to start providing it. I love this one because also it, it touches on the economic benefits and the um, prospective, you know, economic advantages of of being smarter about climate. Um, you know, one of the things, I mean, this podcast is mostly aimed at an American audience. And one of the things that people don't often understand is that actually clean energy is a huge growth field for America. And more people work in the solar industry, for example, than in the coal industry, even though the coal industry gets a lot of attention. So it's right now, it's where the jobs are and it's where the economic growth is coming from. So it's also probably a pretty wise investment decision to think about um, wanting to in invest in these industries that are kind of emerging technologies that are going to be more future facing than than the kind of outdated carbon uh, carbon producing uh, industries that we've been relying on for investment. Yes, certainly. You know, there's lots of lots of growth opportunities across the piece in climate change technologies. And that's an exciting place to invest in. That's not to say that it's not without its risks. Right. You sure. Know? All, all new growth growth areas are, but that should be a risk that people consider taking, right? Yeah. Um, and I think also with a view to sort of just investing your money in somewhere safe, there's often a, a little bit of a disagreement about whether, well, fossil fuels, these big fossil fuel companies continue to give you a safe return, stick with them. Um, but eventually at some point they, they might just stop giving you that kind of return. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, there's, there's an increasing pressure um, on those companies to have something that's that have a, have a policy and approach that's relevant to the climate crisis that we're facing. Um, and uh, eventually something bad is going to happen to some of those companies. Yeah. And that's a real risk, especially with your long term investments, long term investments that you have, for example, in your pension fund. So is that a risk that you're willing to take? And, you know, finally, we, we also observe the climate around us changing. And you need to think about if your long term investments are in things that are at risk of being damaged by climate related events. Um, we've seen severe heat related uh, events recently actually affecting agricultural outputs in some countries. We've seen flooding events, um, which, again, to some degree, are attributable to the climate change that have already happened, also destroying infrastructure and property. So you have to think to yourself, have I actually climate proofed my investments? Or is the guardian of my pension fund actually thinking about this or not? Right. So um, suggestion number seven for um, helping the climate. I'm sorry, number eight. We've done, seven was invest your money wisely. Number eight is cut consumption and waste. That's quite general. What is? What do you mean in particular? So what we mean by that is you know, as I said to you at the beginning of this podcast, it is possible for us to, you know, stay within some of these temperature goals that we've got in mind. But one of the one of the issues that we face is that we, we basically, especially in the wealthy developed part of the world, we use a lot of stuff. And actually, we probably use a lot of stuff that we don't need to use. And if we reduced and were a bit more efficient about our use of things, and also prevented waste of stuff, then actually, again, we wouldn't be creating all these emissions from making and remaking things all the time. So if you just think about buying things that last a long time, all kinds of products and good quality products, that's sort of sensible for the bottom line, you know, again, if you can afford the upfront costs. And it also prevents this sort of cycle of producing greenhouse gas emissions constantly in the production of, of many sort of things that we buy and just toss away. And, you know, this thing about waste is relevant um, to products. It's also relevant to food. The wasting those kind of things, it's simply throwing greenhouse gases out, out into the atmosphere without bringing us even any particular benefit. Right. Excellent. So so buy that one really excellent blazer instead of buying six cheap off-the-shelf dresses, basically. Buy, invest in, you know, from a fashion point of view, invest in good quality things that are going to last longer so you need fewer of them. Yes, Mar exactly. Marry Condro your life. <laughs> and also, you know, you think about, um, there are lots of really interesting business models about how people say you could you could lease your clothes or, you know, there's a really interesting company, I think, in, the, in, in, in Scandinavia where people can get packages of baby clothes that come to them every couple of months when their baby's really small and growing because they don't need to own those and they can yeah. send them back and they're laundered and shared with somebody else. That's so, such a great idea. Yeah, that's a good one, right? I mean, kids, kids' clothes are such a nightmare for that. And actually, we have a, a local neighborhood group that's a seller swap where we're just constantly people are passing on their old kids' clothes to another family and so on and so forth. Stuff like that works as well, doesn't it? Just just sharing out where you have to buy something, like you need to buy baby clothes for a kid who's only going to wear it for two months. Well, then make make sure you're not the last person to wear those baby clothes. Exactly. All these kind of community initiatives or group initiatives are all good ways on basically cutting this sort of consumption and reducing how, how wasteful we sometimes are as a society. Okay. And the final um, point, um, which again, feels like a very, a very big one is just talk about the changes that you make. What do you mean by that? And how does that make a difference? I think, I think it's a, it's, I, well, I've worked on climate change for quite a while. And I think at the beginning, this was something I did at work. And then I wouldn't really speak to people about it when I left work. And that's something that we started to realize is a problem actually 
when people are making quite big changes, um, so like you spoke about trying to eat less meat, actually speaking to other people about your journey doing that might inspire other people to change, or it might just help us as a society start moving in a direction that otherwise we wouldn't. So there's a kind of inertia. If everybody thinks it's impossible and no one thinks anyone's doing anything about it, then it's going to stop individuals from taking action. But if they think, oh yeah, look, my friends and my neighbors are trying this, then you actually might find that we can all become greater than the sum of our parts. And you say, don't be a bore or confrontational, just talk positively and be honest about the ups and downs. I think that's really important because nobody wants to hear you going on for for an hour about how veganism is great and and everybody must give up meat. But it's really interesting to hear people's personal stories and and where they're coming from. Um, Just make sure it's a two-way dialogue and a give and take. Yeah, I think that's right. And also because um, different people like doing all of these things we've listed here, you know, they're, they're all excellent and help with the climate. But other people might choose to do these things for other reasons. And so actually when you engage with people, uh, it's good to hear from them what they feel uncomfortable about. Maybe someone, you know, might might feel very uncomfortable about walking. They like to take their car. Perhaps they feel safer in their car. Um, and maybe they wouldn't do that for climate change reasons, but maybe they have a child with asthma and actually they're very concerned about air quality. So they might actually be willing to change their car to an electric vehicle. And you can have a conversation about why that works for their priorities and your priorities. I love that. So listen, um, Elisa, we've talked about a whole bunch of personal things that we as individuals can do. And I personally feel really inspired now that there is a lot of things that I can do really practically um, in my local world. But if you were to, you know, if I put you in front of a policymaker, let's say the next president of the United States, um, and you were to ask him or her to make a policy-oriented change at, at a national or an international level, what kind of change, what kind of, can you think of a single policy that you would suggest that you think would make a big impact at that level? Um, the first thing that springs to mind, I mean, I, I would say something about infrastructure. Um, I would say that the low carbon infrastructure needs to be invested in now across the whole of the U.S. and any country like the U.S. to help citizens make these choices, particularly for low carbon transport, low carbon heating and low carbon electricity. So that person would have to start now Um, and reinvest and recreate the concept of public transportation, including railways and other systems reaching into rural parts of the U.S. I think that's really vital. Make that something that's exciting and modern and acceptable in a way that people will want to to travel and rely upon. And similarly for the power sector and the heating sector, valuing that kind of technology that's now available um, across, across both heating and electricity and starting to create communities where nobody even has to make a choice. They just get the low carbon option. Yeah. Again, it's about that choice architecture. It's helping people not even have to make good choices because the choices that are available to them are, are all better. Yes, exactly. In fact, I didn't even mention the thing. You said choice architecture, and I realized I forgot to mention planning because I actually do love buildings and architecture and planning and you know that <laughs> kind of overall kind of city and town and regional planning and how you build your actual buildings and houses how you integrate green space and all that kind of thing is is really vital and at the heart of this. Wonderful. Well, listen, thank you, Elisa. I personally found that really helpful and interesting. And to those people out there who are participating in the climate strike today, um, have a think about how you can integrate some of these ideas into your life. I certainly will be thinking about that. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. 
So congratulations, you have just participated in a 30-minute climate strike, taking a stop from your work or whatever else you were doing today uh, to spend some time thinking about the climate and thinking about what you can do about it. Um, In keeping with that theme, I thought I'd now expand the conversation out and return to the core theme of this podcast, which is ultimately the the Democratic primary, um, and highlight for you some of the ideas that have come out from Democratic candidates. Um, It's worth noting that uh, the climate is actually um, sincerely one of the issues that voters are rating as among their highest highest priority in the 2020 election. Um, This includes Democratic voters, but also independents and and even many Republicans. Um, Almost every candidate has done, has issued some kind of plan or policies that address the climate. Um, Some of them are um, kind of unusual or different, but it's striking that there's near unanimity about the importance of the issue, um, which is absolutely right. Um, And a kind of general general agreement about the need for sweeping structural and infrastructure reforms that will um, impact the future in a positive way. Um, So um, first and foremost, uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has adopted um, the Green New Deal, um, which was crafted by um, a wonderful activist group called the Sunrise Movement. The Green New Deal envisions um, a way of thinking about the climate that's bold enough to take account of the fundamental changes that would need to be made to our economy in order to shift to a low-carbon economy, whilst hopefully still um, securing economic justice, especially thinking about those communities that will be left behind um, by the changing climate and by the shift away from um, fossil fuels. Um, Bernie Sanders' plan calls for zeroing out emissions from transportation and power generation by 2030. Um, In typical feisty Bernie Sanders fashion, he also directly calls for the criminal prosecution of greenhouse gas emitters like ExxonMobil. Um, Senator Elizabeth Sanders of Massachusetts, um, in typical Elizabeth Warren fashion, um, she has integrated her thinking about climate with her um, general approach to fighting corruption and the influence of money in politics. Um, And she's integrated, rather than produce just one climate plan, she has integrated it in her proposals for a range of issues. So she's included... um, proposals on the climate in um, her proposals on public lands, military, military spending, trade, U.S. manufacturing, um, and a bunch of other things. Um, she's also proposed reaching 100% clean energy as soon as possible. Um, her view is that the climate is not one issue. It's integrated in um, everything that we're working on. Um, And so she said, I decided I was going to look at climate in every part of the plans I'm working on. Um, And in general, she's framed climate as an issue of economics, public resources, and national security, not just an environmental issue. Um, Andrew Yang, um, entrepreneur and kind of slightly unusual candidate in that he currently holds and has never held any elected office, um, takes a sort of tech bro approach to um, solving climate change. Um, He has proposed... um, some kind of more tech-led innovation ideas like geoengineering. Um, geoengineering is a, an approach to um, kind of using innovation to kind of radically disrupt um, the planet. For example, some of the more unusual ideas are things like putting mirrors in space to deflect sunlight away or spraying particles in the air to help cool the planet. Um, but another interesting thing about Yang is he's proposed um, $40 billion worth of grants um, earmarked for people in coastal areas 
is um, to help um, encourage them to move inland. Um, he's basically just kind of taken the the sad but um, true realization that um, there are a lot of people living in communities right now that will be underwater, um, even almost no matter what we do in the climate now because we've waited too long. Um, so as much as that's a sad thought, Yang's position, which I completely understand, is that we need to now account for some of that. Um, housing, uh, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro um, has a similar set of concerns, um, but from a global, not just a U.S. perspective, um, he's directly called for creating a new classification for refugees, of climate refugees, um, to um, benefit people who are fleeing from climate-related disasters. Um, so this is just him recognizing that there are parts of the world, and tragically, they are typically the low-carbon producing parts of the world, developing economies in low-lying islands and areas, um, who will be disproportionately affected by um, the rising sea levels and the um, cat catastrophic climate change. Um, and he is proposing that we create a category to welcome those people into the United States, which, to say the least, is not President Trump's strategy or approach, but is very kind and compassionate and um, I'm concerned with, with global justice. Uh, Senator Kamala Harris, um, interestingly, has taken almost a, a prosecutorial approach to um, some of her proposals on climate change, which, again, makes complete sense given her, her background and her story. Um, she is interested in expanding access to the legal system for people who have been negatively affected by greenhouse gas emitters. Um, it sounds a bit wonky, but basically what she's saying is that she wants to um, statutorily reinforce standing. That means um, create, make it possible for people to seek redress through the legal system um, for climate change related phenomenon. Um, so again, that's a very prosecutorial approach, but it also does kind of touch on something that's a, a key problem, um, that, that we do have in dealing with the climate generally, which is that the, um, it, 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 it's, it's difficult often to pinpoint an individual victim of a problem. There are whole communities that are victims and the legal system is based on an adversarial approach of, of kind of one directly affected individual um, challenging one direct person or company. Um, so some of the changes that she would be making would be almost kind of taking that negative externality to use an economic term, and making it something that people can seek direct redress for legally, um, which I thought was kind of an interesting approach. Um, former Representative and, and Texas Senate candidate Beto O'Rourke um, was the earliest Democratic candidate to come out with a climate uh, climate uh, agenda. Um, and he starts by setting a legally binding target for net zero greenhouse gases by 2015. Um, gets there through a range of mechanisms, um, but basically um, is doing uh, targeting net zero. Um, he's also stressing the, the economic benefits of it. Um, as a, as a, um, a representative, um, he talks about, let us as Americans invest in the people of Houston and the Southeast of America and every community that's on the front lines of climate change. So sort of talking about the fact that um, we need to invest in these new industries. South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg um, has talked about kind of the generational displacement effect of climate change um, and his proposal, amongst other things, it calls for, um, it would cost about $1.5 to $2 trillion um, and it calls for a carbon tax um, to fund it with revenues distributed back 
to um, low and middle income Americans. So um, basically he's using a kind of economic equality argument there as well. Um, Amy Klobuchar, Senator of Minnesota, she's proposing a trillion dollar infrastructure package, uh, package to modernize the power grid, um, retrofit buildings, etc. This is a little bit like what um, Elisa was talking about with getting the infrastructure right, which is a, a, a common theme of many of these plans is, is getting um, kind of climate friendly infrastructure in place. Uh, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker has talked about climate change as a social justice issue. Um, and interestingly, um, as a vegan, Booker says he's not necessarily um, aiming to phase out meat, but he does talk about um, U.S. food production and how it could be restructured in a way that's both more sustainable and more just for the farmers themselves. And that's a really interesting issue that I think we're only just starting to understand, which is that commercial factory farming is, is not only bad for animal welfare, it's um, bad for certainly for the environment and the, and the way that we produce, but actually it, it hasn't been very fair and, and good for farmers. And actually there is other land use um, for, for land use for crops would probably be a more sustainable and a preferable way in a number of different ways um, for farmers to actually use their land. So um, how could we, how could we shift to that ground? Former Vice President Joe Biden um, is originally sounded like he was talking about kind of a middle ground policy. Um, he took a lot of criticism for that, but when he did put out his policy, um, it actually was quite similar to a lot of the other Democratic policies. Um, one interesting point in Biden's plan is that he talks about um, prioritizing the creation of, um, of electronic vehicle infrastructure, charging stations, basically. Um, he's calling for 500,000 recharging stations throughout the country um, by the year 2030, which again would, would just, that infrastructure would make a big difference to people's ability to make the choice to buy an electric vehicle. So that's, that's a really interesting thing. Um, billionaire Tom Steyer um, ha is calling for $2 trillion in federal investment. Um, uh, he's calling for also a cabinet level position, a, a basically a secretary of climate to coordinate national climate action, which I quite like actually. It kind of feels like you know, you could subsume that in another cabinet office, but I think the idea of focusing on it at cabinet, cabinet level makes a lot of sense. So that's a really interesting idea to me. Um, Senator Colorado, Senator Michael Bennett, um, he's calling for a global climate summit in his first 100 days in office. He also, and I thought this was quite interesting, he calls for a climate bank. Um, so something that would um, to take money away from the private sector um, and basically, um, basically, sorry, no, to add money into the private sector to help um, drive the financing of clean energy and climate resilience projects. But I think the idea of a dedicated financial financial um, in, in, instrument um, specifically um, for the purpose of funding and and uh, incentivizing climate climate um, beneficial products and services is a really interesting idea. Um, so in short, I guess the summary is there are a lot of interesting ideas, some serious energy, and a lot of consensus in, and agreement across the Democratic caucus um, on the severity and importance of resolving the climate crisis, which is, which is with us now. It's not, it's not something that we're looking at for the future. We are seeing weather conditions that are um, deeply damaging. We're seeing um, rising temperatures across the globe. Um, the possibility that, that um, the climate might change 
not just by the two two degrees that we're preparing for, but by as many as three or four degrees, um, the potential impacts of that would cause millions of people to be displaced. It would cause the destruction of longstanding ecosystems and economic and, and environmental infrastructure. Um, it would be devastating to the country and to the planet. Um, fortunately, as we've been talking about today, um, there is no reason, no need to give up. There is lots that we still can do. And, um, you know, as long as we start today. So um, I will I will be doing whatever I can. Um, and I think if we all do and if we all speak up and we all make sure this issue is um, driven to the top of the political agenda, at least on the one side of the American Isle that cares about saving human life, <laughs> then, uh, you know, the Democrats seem to be our, our last hope. So in a sort of Star Wars-y way, I guess we'd have to say, help me, Democratic Party, you're my only hope. And there it is. And that's it. Finally, I would like to give a thank you to uh, podcast listener Stefan from Germany, who sent me a very kind voicemail to say how much he appreciated the podcast. Thank you for that, Stefan. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and who also pointed out to me that um, I sometimes have alerts pinging off in the background of the uh, podcast. Apologies about that. I am trying to switch them off. Uh, it's a little bit tricky. I think one of them might have snuck into this podcast, but I've been trying to be more conscious about that and make sure that I have all of my um, apps and email closed before I begin the podcast. I, I know how annoying it is for those little pings to go off. I assure you it annoys me too. Um, but thank you for listening. Um, and I would welcome any further helpful tips and advice and feedback um, from any of you. Um, my caller also told me that he doesn't necessarily think the YouTube channel is worth pursuing. Um, I actually agree with that. You might have noticed that I've stopped updating the YouTube channel some while ago. Um, it just didn't seem like it was necessarily driving a lot of new listens and I just wanted to make sure I was focusing on, on getting the podcast itself right. But it was worth giving it a try. So thank you for that feedback. Really valuable. Um, as always, anybody who wants to um, drop me a voicemail, just hit the link in the podcast uh, description and you can use the Anchor app to send me any, any voicemail communications you would like. Thank you so much. And again, you can always find me on Twitter. I'm at Karen J-R. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R. Um, if you are an American abroad, please make sure to register and request your absentee ballot at votefromabroad.org. Or if you're an American back home, back home go to vote.org and get your ballot. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you next week.